Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 105. The third battle of the Tumpo Triangle was about to begin the date 23rd of March, 1988. The wary 61 mechanized battalion had withdrawn, the men exhausted after four months of shifting about and fighting a popular while their equipment was in bad shape. By the 13th of March, the tattered 2-0 brigade of which 61 Mech was part had arrived back at Rundu across the Kuneni River, and for the third and final attack on the triangle, Pat McLaughlin had returned command to Colonel Paul Fouchier. If you remember last episode, he'd been sent back to the Republic to try and drum up another brigade, which he'd find difficult. He had turned to the Omana, the campers, or the citizen force, as it was known. French troops were brought in from South Africa, mostly from 82 Mechanized Brigade, and this would be the first time since 1984 that the citizen force would furnish most of the troops for the upcoming Operation Packer. When you hear the makeshift formation, you'll understand that this operation was not going to be easy for any commander, however motivated the men were. The reality was these were soldiers who were part-timers. They may have been excellent as national servicemen, but now they were back in Sibby Street. Mentally, they had now to contend with wives and children far away. They were accountants and teachers. Helping Fushir put together the viable force was Commandant Gerard Lowe, the tank and armoured car instructor at the South African Battle School based at Lohatla in the Northern Cape. Lowe was regarded as one of the most disciplined officers of his time in his early 30s and took the life of a soldier very seriously. His discipline was going to hold the men of his command in good stead in difficult circumstances. They would need every ramrod spine they could get in the coming weeks. The battle school's role was to keep the citizen force ready to go as much as possible by refresher training. These men of the mechanized brigades would be called up as often as possible to try and keep their skills together, but this was just not possible. The SADF's narrative of the time and many of these men's narrative was that they were as sharp as the national servicemen and permanent force, but I'm afraid that's wishful thinking. Citizen force tank crew from the Orange Free State Regiment, President Stain, were mobilized in February 1988 and had less than a month to train up for the next assault on the Tumpo Triangle. Lowe arrived at the school a fortnight before these campers arrived, training the instructors who were going to prepare the citizen force Omana. Veterans of the previous two battles from 61 Mech and Forsai were drafted in to help speed up 82 Mechanized Brigade's instruction. The summer of 1987-88 was one of the wettest on record back in South Africa, and the Orange River was in flood. One of the farmers who had been almost bankrupted by the deluge was Citizen Force Tank Commander Colonel Tobias Johannes von Skolfrek. His business was swept away by the flooding. His home was swamped. He asked to be allowed to return to try and recover what he could, and Lowe took over command of the two Citizen Force Tank squadrons to lead them into battle as well. The haphazard nature of Pretoria's tactical planning and strategic understanding of how to fight a mobile war with tanks and infantry in thick bush was going to upend another group of tough South African soldiers. The generals were now interfering in all decisions, along with cabinet members, who were a hindrance to the officers on the ground, at least according to their accounts. The micromanaging was to have implications for the men of 82 Mechanized Brigade. Despite the debriefings after Tumpo 1 and 2, the military strategists back in South Africa seemed to suffer from a brain freeze. The conventional battles in the bush were no longer the domain of the infantry taking the lead with some artillery support, it was now the domain of tanks and rattles backed up by the artillery, with some infantry. The infantry had been exposed in both Tumpo attacks. Unita, which had been riding on the backs of the tanks and armoured vehicles, had suffered terribly after being raked by shrapnel by Fapla's artillery. Both the South Africans and the Angolans were focusing on the heavy weapons, their concentrated artillery fire, their armoured vehicles. 
The most important aspect of this period of the border war was Pretoria's seeming inability to get to grips with the basic tenets of these new tactics. They were bogged down in their preconceptions about how poorly Fapla fought. And by now, Fapla had learned a thing or two from SADF, including advanced night fighting capabilities, tactical retreats, and deploying multiple minefields. And the South African attacks mainly took place during the day when Fapla could use their air superiority. Furthermore, Pretoria seemed to misunderstand the role that the Cubans were now playing. There was something wrong with the analysis when 82 SA Brigade was formed, said Lowe later. The citizen force units called up did not constitute a full tank regiment, even though it was perceived the battle would be based on a tank regiment-led assault. After holding the tactical aces for most of the border war, the South Africans were now slipping up. Many hundreds of pages of analysis have been published about this. Despite knowing that the next assault on Tumpo is going to be led by tanks, Pretoria failed to ensure enough Ulufans were lined up for the battle. The top brass had boasted about the Ulufan that none of these advanced tanks had been knocked out by a round through its armour yet. They'd all either broken down or had their tracks blown off by mines. Instead of appreciating what kind of tactic had to be used, Pretoria HQ merely replaced the 61 Mech and Forsai units that had been withdrawn almost on a one-to-one basis. I was a whole squadron of 11 tanks short to form a proper regiment, Lowe told Fred Bridgeland later. I had no proper regimental HQ, only two infantry battalion HQ structures as provided for by 61 Mech and Forsyth, he complained. Lowe had to form a makeshift regimental HQ with one of the tanks and then draw on the staff from Delaray Citizen Force Infantry Battalion to make up the rest of the crew. So he had two Ulifan squadrons from Regiment President Stain, all with brand new tanks. Then Lowe discovered they were so brand new that they hadn't been fitted with 7.62mm machine guns, which was so important to keep the enemy infantry at bay. Bolstering this force was a Rattle 90 squadron from Regiment Moy River, which took over 61 mechs damaged vehicles, along with two mechanized infantry battalions, Delaray and Groot Karu. Lowe would also be joined by two artillery batteries, G6s and G2s from Regiment Potchestrum University, along with a battery of 120mm mortars from 44 Para Brigade and a troop of mobile rocket launchers from 19 Rocket Regiment. The G2s were vintage World War II guns with a range of only 16 kilometers. Waiting near the Chambinga high ground outside Quito Quanavali was 3-2 Battalion. Three motorized rifle companies would be renewing their assault on the strategic town. Then fewer than usual UNITA troops were available. The rebel movement had been scarred by combat attrition. Instead of the 700 troops Lowe wanted, he received 200. Now the SADF had merely swapped out the roles. This was an almost exact copy of 2-0 Brigade, which was standing down after months of fighting inside Angola. One major difference was the soldiers. They were citizen force, men who were now spending most of the year in Civi Street, as I said. While many skills could be retained, the marching, saluting, cleaning of firearms, the main skills of armoured movement and accurate shooting were not. Driving a tank is not like riding a bike, particularly when you're driving a tank into battle. Holding formation is very difficult and takes constant practice. Targeting a distant enemy also takes practice, practice, practice. Then practice some more. Lowe had only a few weeks to convert the Omana back into well-drilled troops instead of the usual few months this kind of tactical training requires. These men were motivated, their morale was high, but they needed more time to train and the SADF was running out of time.
While all of this was going on, U.S. Secretary of State for African Affairs Chester Crocker had been busy behind the scenes negotiating a solution to this war over the future of Namibia. The SEDF was suddenly in a rush to boot the Cubans and the Angolans out of their own southern town, or at least move them away from the southwest African border. Looking back on this moment, it seems rather mad what happened next. Lowe was aware of these political pressures as he prepared the operation training President Stein tank squadrons in regimental tactics, getting the Delaray mechanized infantry to work in coordination with UNITA's somewhat weakened 5th Regular Battalion. The first attack was set for early in March, but Lowe convinced Army had cut Liebenbach to postpone. But the generals would not permit another delay, and D-Day for Tumpo III was set for the early hours of Wednesday, March 23, 1988. One of the main aims was to drive Fapla over the Quito River Bridge by the evening of the 23rd when field engineers supported by two companies of 3-2 Battalion and UNITA would arrive, monitored by men of 4 Reconnaissance Commando. The South Africans wanted to blow up the entire bridge. Then they would withdraw, having supposedly secured Mavinga and protected UNITA from the major assault they'd weathered since October 1987. Alpha and Bravo Ulufant squadrons of the Regiment President Stein were already at the Brigade Tactical HQ east of the Chambinga High Ground, and all units were to begin moving forward towards the jump-off point on the afternoon of 22nd March. The Artillery Regiment Potch University had one battery of G5s. Arms Corps was manufacturing G5s by the dozen, but the Pretoria government was exporting most of these, including 100 of the important guns that went to Iraq, along with thousands of rounds of ammunition all in exchange for oil. That was all very well when it came to strategic fuel supplies, but this was having a negative impact on the SADF being able to function in southern Angola. Fidel Castro had decided months before that these battles were going to be won through his MiGs and his artillery, along with the tanks, rather than relying on the infantry, and history proved him correct. Also lining up near the Chambinga high ground was UNITA, which had managed to send 3rd and 4th regular battalion to join the 5th battalion, which then bolstered Lowe's attacking numbers. But all of these men were on foot. Four other semi-regular UNITA battalions were also going to play a role in the coming battle around Quito Cuanavali. Two of these battalions on the east bank of the Quito River and two on the west. They'd be conducting hit-and-run assaults to try and destabilize the Cuban and Angolan defensive positions south of the Tumpo River. Meanwhile, the main attack would be carried out north of the Tumpo River, following the south bank of the Dala, then turning left or further south towards Fapla base behind a series of minefields. And it was these minefields that were going to cause havoc, particularly with the Ulifant tanks, as you'll hear. The minefields had already caused problems on the night of the 9th of March, 3-2 Battalion Lieutenant Tai Taron stepped on a Soviet anti-personnel mine while patrolling the Anhara Lepanda flatlands and lost his right foot. The regiment Khrut Karu was attached to 3-2 Battalion and began a series of diversionary missions to the south of the Tumpa River, building bridges and making a lot of noise. By now, however, the Cubans, the Russians and Angolans had learned to ignore the obvious noise being made by the South Africans. They'd figured out there was just too much going on for this to be the main area of attack. They'd been using the same diversionary tactics over and over for 10 years and used the same tactic for five previous attempts to trick Fapla. It's a bit like a magic trick when your audience has figured out how the rabbit came out of the hat by Act 2 and you're using the same hat and the rabbit in Act 6. Not clever. 
There was more bad news on the 19th, on the eve of the battle, when an SAF was mirage flown by Major Willy van Copenhagen crashed in northern Namibia while flying back to Grootfontein from a bombing attack into the Tumbo Triangle. The SAF was said that his mirage had experienced a technical problem at low altitude leading to the crash. Another irreplaceable pilot lost, another mirage gone. By now, Fapla had just over 1,400 men on the eastern bank of the Quito River, including two fire brigades HQ with three infantry battalions, supported by hundreds of men from 66 Brigade and 13 Brigade. Fapla also had 15 tanks as part of three tank battalion parked on the eastern Quito River bank. But 10 of these tanks were not serviceable. They had been dug into positions and were set up as artillery with B-10 recoilless guns between them. There were apparently more than two dozen 23mm anti-aircraft rapid-firing guns stationed around the Tumpo bridgehead. These provided a devastating crossfire. To the west, Fapla's 13 Brigade was based just outside Quito Guanavali, reinforced by a Cuban company. The west bank of the Quito River was now bristling with artillery of all kinds, massed in places to provide truly phenomenal firepower. There were batteries of the D31 22mm guns, M46, the 130mm heavy artillery, and then BM-21 and BM-14 multiple rocket launchers. Protecting these from the Reckies and the SADF forward artillery observers was a battalion of 36 Brigade stationed between the Quito and Quanavali rivers. Another battalion from 36 Brigade had moved west of the Quito River, and even further west, 59 Brigade was protecting the Menong supply route into Quito Quanavali. These were significant defensive positions, and the FAPLA soldiers were motivated to fight back against the SADF. Russian advisers had made a big difference by now, along with the Cubans. They were adding a great deal of skill to FAPLA's basic fighting capacity. They'd also shown the Angolans how to survive being hit by an anti-tank mine inside their armoured vehicles by leaving their hatches open. Battening down the hatches meant that the blast wave inside the vehicle had nowhere to go and flattened everyone inside. If you leave it open... You might get away with concussion and perhaps some shrapnel wounds, wrote translator Igor Zhidakin. They'd also taken to brewing rice vodka, and the Russians said afterwards, once they'd had a few shots of their rice vodka, they'd listened to the Voice of Moscow, Voice of America, BBC, and the SABC, the South African Broadcasting Corporation. The Russians spent a lot of time drinking, as advisor Vyacheslav Barabulya explains in the book Bush War, published in 2007. They had been hit by daily bombardments by the SAD of artillery, and by now they had tapped into the almost 100% proof alcohol used in the Pechora anti-aircraft system. They had used this as a form of sleeping tablet just to get over the shock of the SAD of shelling. The hardest time is when everything is over, he wrote. When you return to your billet and begin to rest, the shock switches on. So... 200 grams of water, half diluted with 96% spirit, was essential. Parabulia was afraid of the mirages, and the Russians were generally impressed by the SAF Force pilot's skill, diving for cover as mirages swooped in less than 50 meters above ground. We'd hear a sudden savage roar and rush for cover, he said. The mirages were dropping 500 kilogram bombs with delayed action mechanisms. In one attack, he saw three of these bombs hit a swampy area and get stuck in the mud, standing up on their ends. A Fapla BTR-60 ATC drove up. The men got out and patted the bombs, then got back in their vehicle and drove off. They were barely 300 metres away when the bombs exploded, 
sending the mud and water heaving skywards. The Angolans were just lucky it hadn't happened when they'd thumped the bomb, Parabulia observed. Watching and waiting, these Russians knew that the SADF was gathering on the east side of the Chambinga high ground. Just before the Battle of Tumpo III, SA intelligence had also come to a chilling conclusion. These Angolan, Russian and Cuban defences were all but impregnable, they said. As you've heard, the overarching order given to 82 SA Mechanized Brigade was to clear the eastern bank of the Quito River of all enemy forces, help develop the bank as an obstacle to hold off any counter-attack, and hand over control to UNITA, blowing the bridge and leaving. However, an SADF intelligence document drawn up in mid-March 1988 and known as the Hazer Collection sounded an ominous note. It is once again emphasized that FAPLA has no intent to give up the East Bank and Tumpo Log Base without further ado. FAPLA thus attempts to bring about maximum delay and casualties by means of minefields supported by artillery fire from the West Bank and air support, it said. The Hazer Collection report said that these concentrated artillery units had ranged their guns and were going to fire extremely accurately. Just in case the top brass was hoping for mobility, the intelligence units had gathered information about the minefields and this was a real eye-opener, had the top brass had their eyes open. The area between the Dala River and the Dumpa River has several minefields laid on the most probable routes of approach. The SADF was of course going to take one of these probable routes, and furthermore, Fapla had refined their tactics, while 82 SA Brigade was going to follow exactly the same axis of attack as 61 Mech had attempted a couple of weeks earlier. Military theory can be smart-assed and artificial, but it's also definitively correct if you're looking at stats. Now and again, something will come up that contradicts the logic, but it's not often. And it wouldn't be this time either. Take a step back for a moment and analyze what's going on. Sun Tzu and Klauswitz and Sir Basil Little Hart all warn about this. Hart specifically warned attackers should choose the line or course of least expectation, then exploit the line of least resistance, and do this when the defender or the enemy is off guard. Finally, everyone at military school 101 is taught never to renew an attack along the same line after it has failed. The SADF battle plan for Tumpo III was going to do precisely this. But Hart's comment goes further. He says no general is justified in launching his troops into a direct attack on an enemy firmly in position. When the South Africans attacked at Lomba, for example, they'd followed Hart's rules and they'd been successful. But after battering themselves against Fapla east of Quito Quanavali, for some reason the folks making decisions back in Pretoria seem to now believe in miracles rather than the basic tenets of well-worn tactics. Colonel Jan Breitenbach called the battle plan truly misguided, which for him is a somewhat muted comment. Commandant Gerard Lowe was not happy about the plan either and asked Brigadier Eddie Webb, who was chair of the SADF advisory group, to explain just how stupid the plan was to General Kat Liebenbach. General Constant Fulyun, who had some of the clearest ideas about mobility and warfare, also let it be known he thought the attack plan was bad. All of this before the start of Tumpo III. Yes, it's easy to be clever in hindsight, but these experienced vets were being clever before the attack. It's just that the men in charge appear to have forgotten how to think. 
Later, Gerard Lowe visited the battlefield in 2018 and told Leopold Skultz that when he stood on the ground held by Fapler and looked towards the direction that the South Africans would have taken back in 1988, he said, From the high ground on the west bank of the battlefield lies a diorama spread before one to the advantage of the defender. The Cubans and Angolans had a defensive system in place that was cunningly rethought. They had boosted many of the anti-tank mines with 130mm high-explosive shells buried alongside, and the minefields had now become awesome destructive weapons. The South Africans were going to steam straight into these minefields with devastating results. What happened next is for episode 106. Please rate the podcast on iTunes. It helps raise the visibility of the series. If you want to contact me, you can head off to abwarpodcast.com. There's a contact form on the homepage. Or you can direct message me on Twitter at Des Latham. Until next, fast bait.